once upon a time, there was a bus. And this bus was filled with people. If you can imagine, this was a perpetual bus ride. Some of the people on the bus had been on it a long time. They were born on the bus. There were folk who learned to, to walk on the bus and folk who were married on the bus. On occasion, it would pull off the side and new folk would get on and some folk would get off and just change buses and some had decided they'd been taken for a ride too long. They were done. But generally speaking, they, they stayed together and the journey continued. You can imagine after time, there would be committees that would be formed to decide and discuss whether or not the seats were the most up-to-date or most cushy-ish seats on the bus. They would discuss perhaps the overhead storage or, or, or the carpet and wonder whether or not it was time to repaint the bus. And these discussions could take a long time with some heated debate. But the journey continued. The wheels of the bus kept going round and round and round. On occasion, it might break down. There might be a flat tire. They would pull off to the side maybe to, to get a new driver from time to time. And perhaps the people had to pool their money to come up with a new transmission for the bus. But again, don't worry, in time it went back on the road and the wheels of the bus would turn and the journey would continue. The, the bus was in immaculate shape, though. It was a glorious bus to ride. The, the staff was well trained. The activities on the bus for the people on the bus were just done very well. And, and the people on the bus, though, in time had lots of questions. Questions, can we afford this? Is this the most up-to-date bus we should be riding? Does the driver have any clue? Uh, is he qualified? Good questions to ask if you're on the bus. But one question that was never asked, or if it was, it was never answered, was, where are we going? Perhaps the most important question. Nobody seemed to care. They were just on the ride. You know, it amazes me how many churches today operate in the same venue. We're on our way. Don't know where we're going, but we're very concentrating and, and taking all of the, our ener mental energies on what's going on inside the bus and how it's looking. And, and really, no question asked to destination. Marcus Buckingham is a uh, business guru author. He's written a lot of business books. I don't know where this guy's faith is. Uh, but for boards of directors and CEOs and those sort of things. And in the, the book he, he has written entitled, The One Thing You Need to Know, basically he, he looks at a lot of Fortune 500 companies who have, for one reason or the other, decided they needed to get into a different industry. And that through acquisitions or mergers or whatever else, they started doing something that was way out of their ballpark, something they really didn't have the expertise to do, and how quite often those things almost sank the mother company. And through the book, he ends up saying that really, there is one key thing that you need to keep in mind. There's one thing that, that got you where you are that you need to focus on. And if you try to focus on too many different things, it will be your downfall. He, he says this in his book. He says, today... You must excel at filtering the world. You must be able to cut through the clutter and zero in on the emotions or facts or events that really matter. You must learn to distinguish between what is merely important and what is imperative. You must learn to play, place less value on all that you can remember and more on those few things that you must never forget. The one thing. In church, it's so easy. Church world get caught up with lots of things, good things, some of them. You say, what is the one thing that we cannot ever forget? 
Where are we going? Well, this is what we want to try to answer this morning in a 30,000 foot flyover. I believe Jesus answers this question for us in Matthew chapter 28. If you've got your Bibles, will you turn with me to perhaps one of the most familiar passages for evangelical Christians? Matthew 28. And as you're turning, let me give you a little of the background on this text just to bring you where, where, where it's at. Jesus has already walked on the water and he's already preached and he's already debated and he's already uh, died and he's already rose from the dead. It's been about 40 days since the first Easter here in Matthew 28. He's getting ready to, to leave this earth bodily. He's going to ascend. And so he calls his, his disciples together. He's going to give them their last marching orders. This is going to be their goodbye celebration. It's not a mushy sort of goodbye. He's not really going. He said, I'm not going to leave you as, as orphans. He's going to be with them. But he's going to be gone physically. And so he says this in verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this Great Commission, we call it, probably didn't catch his disciples off guard very much. I mean, they know that this is why Jesus came. He was very clear. Let, let them know that this is why I came. I, I came for the purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost. That's what I'm all about. And they watched Jesus do this very thing over the years. Up to this point, though, basically, it has following Jesus. Basically, it's been a, a, a come and watch. Come and observe. Watch Jesus walk on water and, and argue with the Pharisees and win the debates and preach the king. Watch. Now, Jesus incorporated these guys, though, from time to time. We find it right from the very beginning, though, this was his plan. If you remember, when he calls them initially, he says, come follow me and I will take you to heaven. No, he doesn't say that. And I will be with you when life is hard for you. Of course he is, but that's not what he says. What, from the very beginning, he makes it real clear. His plan, follow me and I will make you fishes of men. This is the idea. This is the plan. Basically, he lets them know if you're not interested in being a fisher of men, don't follow me. That's what it's about. And, and when, when he thinks they're starting to get ready in Luke chapter 9, he sends them off. Uh, when Jesus called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And when they get back, they're high-fiving each other. It went well. It went great. So Jesus, this is good. So in chapter 10, he decides to broaden the net a little bit, sends out 72. And just before he sends them out, he says this. Fascinating, fascinating verse. Luke chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, he told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. The lambs among wolves thing basically means this is not going to be real easy. I think this is, this is fascinating. I've been thinking about this, this text this week. You know, Jesus certainly prayed a lot. And Jesus had no problem teaching his people to pray. He challenged them on a regular basis. But I think this is the only place 
Jesus gives a specific prayer request. This is it. If you think, if you found otherwise, let me know. But I, I've not been able to come come to that in my mind. Uh, and if you, you think of somebody who is uh, kind of quiet, they're not really given prayer requests on a regular basis. They walk with the Lord, but that's the, they're quiet on this. And suddenly they pull you aside one day and they say, listen, will you pray with me about this one thing? And this would kind of shock you, wouldn't it? Oh, God, this must be pretty important to this person. This must really bother them inside, so much so that they're going to go outside their, their routine and, and lay this on me as a prayer request. So, yeah, disciples, yeah, Jesus, what do you want me to pray for? You know, you're feeling bad, or those Pharisees giving you trouble again? We'll pray for you. You want us to pray? We'll pray. He says, no, 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 no. No, pray, Lord, the harvest. Because, see, the, 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 the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so when you pray, you can send more laborers into the fields. That's kind of a strange request, isn't it? But it gives us a picture of what's going on in Jesus' soul, in his heart. He's saying, you know, they're, they're, they're children. Uh, you know me, suffer the children, but they're, but they're not coming because they don't know about me. And they're, they're teenagers and they're, they're messing up their life with some stupid that they wouldn't be doing if they knew of me, but they don't know. And there's some moms and dads and single people who are living in fear or, or guilt. They're just wasting their life on superficial, stupid things that they, they don't know the joy and peace that they could know if they would follow me. And I'm, I'm, I'm God, Jesus is saying this. I'm God and I'm telling you, I know what's going on in their hearts. And, and if a, a laborer would go out and tell them they would respond. The issue is not their hearts are hard. The issue is we have no laborers to go tell them. So, so would you please pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers? When Jesus saw people, how did he see people? Matthew nine thirty six lets us know that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. For they, they, were, they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Let me ask you, how safe is it for a sheep to not have a shepherd? You had a flock of sheep just hanging out in some wilderness area someplace. You just airlifted, you dropped them down, and they're in the middle of Yosemite National Forest. They're somewhere way out in the middle of nowhere. How long do you think those sheep are going to last? What are the odds do you give them to be able to survive more than two weeks? Um, probability is it won't be too long before incredible anxiety and incredible pain come upon that flock. And when Jesus saw people, regardless of what they look like on the outside, he knows they're like sheep without a shepherd. He hurt for them. And so he says, listen, y'all, I'm, I'm getting ready to go. So the one, one command, you, you have to take over for me. I'm getting, one command I need you to do is make disciples Reach among people. Now, it's interesting, too, what he, he says here, because we look at this command and we say, oh, he's got uh, go and, you know, into all the world. This is like the great missionary passage, and this means we've got to go to the foreign field. And, but that's not at all what he's saying. The, the, the go is, is not a command. In the original, it says this. It says, while you are going, make disciples. You, 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 no, please, hear that. That's real important. While you are going about your life, Make disciples. While you're going to do whatever it is that life might call you to do, make disciples. When you go to school, while you're going to school, make disciples. 
while you go to the university. See, it's not when you graduate. No, no, while you're going to the university, make disciples. While you're at work, make disciples. While you're at the PTA or at your club or at your, your practice, make disciples. That's what it's about. Whatever you would do, wherever you would go, the one thing that you've got to keep in your mind, the one thing that you're about, the one thing that Jesus said, here's what it's all about. Make disciples. Then he throws them a little bit more of a curve. He says, I want you to make disciples of all nations. Now, if you remember Jesus' ministry at this point, it has been Gentile-ish. Nah, some Gentiles once in a while, but generally speaking, it's, he says, I've come to, to the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when Gentiles tried to muscle in on that from time to time, he, he kind of held them at bay. And he knows his disciples, listen, guys, we've been between Jerusalem and we've been between Galilee, and that's where we've hung out, and it's been almost all Jewish. And they're thinking, yeah, of course it ought, be, it ought to be all Jewish, because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's Jewish. That's what it's supposed to be. And Jesus says, yeah, I know that's what we've done, and there's theological reasons for doing that. However, I'm changing stuff up on you a little bit, because, see, the picture from the beginning has been a little bit bigger in Palestine. It's the whole world. So go make disciples of all nations. That's, that's kind of an amazing thing. How, how, how are we supposed to do that? And let me throw this on you before uh, I forget, because what Jesus is telling them is, an, is, is just a, it's a supernatural thing. Spiritual life is spiritual. You and I can't control it. We can't fake it. We can't drag somebody into it. You've probably shared with somebody from time to time, and they look at you like, you know, you got three heads, and you're going, I can't make it any clearer. What's the deal? And have you ever had the experience where you've tried to share with somebody, and you get it all tangled around, and then they're like, the lights come on. And you're going, I don't know what happened there, but all right, I guess I nailed it. And they're, they're growing, and they're flying. Spiritual birth is a spiritual thing. And you say, how can we do this? And I can imagine these guys saying, Jesus, yeah, yeah, you can go do this because you're Jesus. You're a son of God. You have power that I don't have. You can reach into somebody's heart. You can do all this stuff. You can walk on water. You can deal with these things. But us, look at us. We're a ragtag group. We're fallen people. We're fishermen. We're scared to death most of the time. We, we're not real eloquent. We don't have a clue what's going on. Us. And that's why Jesus says, and surely I am with you. This is not a promise for a hurting Christian. He gives those in different places, but this is not it. This is not a promise that, that he'll hold me up when I'm struggling. He, the promise is there in different places, but this is not it. What this promise is, you're right, you can't deal with supernatural stuff. You can't make the growth happen. But you see, I'm with you. Oh, all right. That changes things a little bit, doesn't it change things? And so he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples. That's the first uh, and only command here. Looks like go is a command. Now, it looks like baptizing and teaching. No, those are participles. That's not the, so the only command is, is to make disciples. And a good question comes up is, okay, what does a disciple look like? Good question. We need to know what it looks like if we're going to make one. and We have to be about making them. What does it look like? And this is, this is not as simple as, as you think. Please be with me, because I think a lot of church I grew up with got this one wrong. And, and getting it wrong can have major negative spiritual impact on people. 
Because he never calls us to go and make converts, right? To go and make disciples. And so, well, what is a disciple? Well, he gives you some guidelines here. First thing he says is, first step in making a disciple is baptizing. Now, in, in Israel at this time, and there were not, were not a whole lot of atheists. Just about everybody was involved in one of, of several very well-defined religions. And again, in Israel at this point, especially if you were Jewish, right, not a Roman guard, you had like a 99.999% chance that you were a follower of Moses and Judaistic temple faith. That's who you were. It wasn't an individual thing. It was more of a corporate solidarity deal, and that's who you were. But when you came to realize... That, that Jesus really was the Messiah, regardless of what the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin were saying. And he really was the Son of God, and he really did create me, and he really did die in my place and, and rise from the dead. And I'm choosing to follow him. You went through a, a, an initiation rite into the church. That's called baptism. And Paul lets us know, Romans 6, what this whole picture is about. And so when you go under water... You are associating yourself with the death of Jesus. And it says if you are dying too, and you're dying to your sin, and you're dying to your old way of life, and everything you were before is gone, you're dead to that. And then when you come up, you're associating yourself with the resurrection of Jesus. It's a new day, a new beginning. I am new. Life is new. It's, it's a new time. It's, it's all new. That's, that's what baptism represents. Baptism is a, is a public demonstration of this. Yes, they were secret followers. Uh, but baptism is going public and saying, I want you to know, I am associating myself with, with Jesus and who he's about. I am his follower. I belong to him. He is my Lord. That's what baptism is, is about. And Second Corinthians lets us know that when this goes on, when this happens... There really is a transformation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is coming. So it's a new day. And so there, there is a, a transformation positionally. It's set. It's done. But Jesus knows it doesn't stop there. It can't stop there. Now again, if, if you're interested in making converts, then it's... That's good. Let them, let them get baptized, let them raise their hand, let them sign the card, let them come forward, and then we're done. It's over. And think of somebody who's come to know Christ. Or maybe think back to when you came to know Christ. And you realize that he's the Messiah, but what's the rest of your, your life map about? Who wrote it? Well, probably your family of origin wrote it. And the, the media probably had something to do with it, and school teachers and well-meaning friends, and you're figuring stuff out yourself. Your ideas about uh, sex and entertainment and money and work and kids and relationships and who God is. Oh, a life. You've got a, a life map. But it's twisted. It's messed up. And you're going to live your life based on that. That's why Paul says to baptize folk, Romans 12, he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't live with those messed up directions. But be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Disciples are those who've met Jesus. They've come to know him. That's our first step. Helping, introducing people to Jesus. This is who he's about. This is who he is. He's your creator. He's your redeemer. This is why you need him. Helping them come to that point where they they commit their life to him. But But it goes beyond that. It goes into helping transform their thinking. That's why Jesus says, you have to teach them everything that I've taught. And so as a person is, is 
focusing on the teachings of Jesus. They're, they're realizing that there's a pretty big gap between what he valued and what they value, right? They're going, oh, and I didn't put that much importance on this, but he's, God's put a lot of importance on this. Hmm, well, uh, maybe I should, I should get on his page instead of expecting him to get on mine. You know, it, it's that realization as you're going through the teachings of, of Jesus of what to do when people hurt you. I know how I used to handle that, but what's he tell me how I'm supposed to handle that? It, when you get through the teachings of Jesus, you understand who God is. Now, I know who I thought God was. Or maybe even who a well-meaning Sunday school teacher way, way back when showed me. But as, as I get into his word, I realize who he is. And suddenly I realize that he's sovereign and I realize that he's loving and he's faithful and that he's committed to me. But he's holy and he's just and he's kind. And as I understand who he is, my faith grows and I trust him more. And as I, I put on, on the armor of God, you've heard this, right? We're supposed to clothe ourselves with the armor of God. Well, how do you do that? Is that like a magical prayer you pray, or just a, a, an exercise in imagination? It's not it. What it is, is it's understanding who your identity, who you are in Him. Understanding who He is, and living in constant consciousness of what His teaching is. That's putting on the armor of God. Clothing yourself with Christ. You know what that is? That's understanding his teachings, who he said he is, who you are, what we're supposed to do in life. And as you, you, you understand those and put those into your life and apply those to your life, you are clothing yourself with Jesus. And slowly, you are beginning to live your life like him. You are a disciple. Disciple is one who's been transformed positionally. Oh, my sins are forgiven. I'm clean. But who is being transformed. Now, scary th- thing with this, let me ask you. Do you want to be a disciple? Or are you just happy to be a convert? See, I, I'm just, I, you know, listen, hang on. I just wanted to get to heaven one day, okay? You know, I mean, I'm just not into all this other stuff. I, I signed up thinking I just would get in. I still want to live my life. You know, I'll, I'll listen to what Jesus has to say and all. But, I, you know, if it's not going to fit, it's not going to fit. But see, when I die, I'm not interested in hell. And so I'm just, I, I want to go there. And so that's the kind of deal I worked out with God. <laughs> but that's really not a biblical deal. You may be a bit deceived come judgment day because that's not a deal he's made from the beginning. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Disciples are what he's after. It's what he longs for. Now, perhaps you're not interested in transformation. You're with Wilbur Reese. And Wilbur said this. He said, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love somebody or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal and a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Well, how... Are we going to make disciples? First question, if you're not one, if you're a convert, you're never going to be able to do it. That's where you start, you freak out on discipleship. I don't know how to do this. Well, it might be that you're not one. And that's not the, we need to educate in other ways too, so don't get too nervous on that. But we have to be sold out first. And the way, I believe, for the church, for FAC, to impact the mission field that God has given us is... uh, that we need to be a spiritual greenhouse. A spiritual greenhouse. You guys know how a greenhouse works, right? 
lights, shortwave radiation, uh, it gets through the glass and plastic of a greenhouse. It's really turning solar heat into thermal heat. And, but then there's chemical reaction, and the, the, the waves become longer, and they can't get back out. It kind of works the way you park your car in the sun on a summer day with the windows rolled up, and you, come, you open the door try to get in, and it's like, whoa, man! But the plants inside the greenhouse uh, interact with, with the light as well, and they release energy back, and their energy consists of some moisture, and so it can be quite humid in a, in a greenhouse. Now, if you are running a greenhouse, then what you know is that you cannot control life. Life is something you can't control, but you can control the environment that is most optimal for life. And so you work on the temperature and you work on the moisture and you work on the fertilizer, not just throwing fertilizer generic. All You know exactly what each plant needs and, and you, you make sure the environment is optimal. Now, let me, let me ask you this. Let's just pretend like we were doing, we're not really going to do this, but let's pretend that what we were going to do today is give every family a handful of seeds. Every family gets the same number of seeds, same quality of seeds, same kind of seeds. And we, we also got a bunch of, of Insta Porta Greenhouse kits that we picked up at Amazon on sale. And so you're going to get one of those as well. And this is the way this works. You get to go home and put up your little greenhouse and plant your seeds. And then in four and a half months... We're all going to be harvested the exact same day, exact same time, and exact same way. It's going to, be, be, going, to be, going to be perfectly accurate. But the family that brings in the most weight of, of, of plants, that family we're going to give $100 million to. We're not doing that. <laughs> so on your way out looking, where's, where do I pick up that, that greenhouse kit? No, 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 no. But if we did that, I'm guessing this. I'm get, now this if this was true... Uh, I'm guessing that you would become a professional botanist in the next four and a half months. You would read everything the library has. You would, you would empty the virtual shelves of Amazon finding books on this. You would probably fly in professors of agriculture. You would make sure you understood what it took for something to grow. And your, your, your greenhouse, the, the, the atmosphere in it would be, the environment would be perfect. Well, the greenhouse that we need to create here... The stakes are a little bit greater than $100 million. We can't force spiritual life. But in, in a greenhouse, while the conditions outside may be harsh, no, no life may happen inside the greenhouse. We have a responsibility for figuring out what, what elements need to be in that greenhouse, at what age level, and then to make sure they are there. Make sure they are part of it. You know, if you went to, to China today... You could go to church in China today, the, the Three Self Church. It's the government church uh, overseen by the, the communist government. You can go to church there and you can hear hymns, some, some hymns with Western tunes you might recognize. You might hear someone give their testimony. It might be good testimony. You could hear a message, and according to the pastor, if you've got a translator, it would be a good biblical message. But the government says three self church do whatever you need to do within the walls but there's there's a rule and there's there's several but one key rule is you can't make disciples you can't share you now none of this trying to bring people you can't do that if you do that it's prison and it's torture you can't do that well now the thing i was dealing with myself this week is what if uh, the communist chinese government took over america and you know what there's one three self church in erie would we want to be a part of it? Now, initially, we would fight, no, that's wrong, that's wrong. But practically speaking, would it really make any difference? 
I mean, you can come, still come to your studies and still come to your, your potlucks and still come to fellowship. And still, yeah. But would it really make any difference? That's a, that's a scary thought. Now, by contrast, when I was in um, high school, I know I've shared this before, but I found a book, Shadow of the Almighty. This was written by Elizabeth Elliot. It was the story of Jim Elliot. I'd never heard of Jim Elliot before. I didn't have a clue who he was. I didn't know really who he was till the end of the book. But I'm reading through this book, and he was at, got to Wheaton College in 1945, and I'm reading through this thing, and I was amazed at his commitment to Christ. It was incredible. He was youthful, radical zeal, you know how this goes, but, but he was amazing. He would challenge other people and what they were going to do with their life. Because there were so many people who didn't have Christ and weren't disciples yet. And how dare them go and waste their life with this? And so he was just a, he was a, a spitfire, right? And so, so fast forward several years. He and a group of his friends, four folk, are trying to make connections with the uh, uh, Wadani Indian tribe, the Aka Indians in Ecuador. This was one of these tribes that no one had been able to make legitimate contact with. A lot have gone out, gone in, but no one has come out kind of thing. And so as they would circle with the plane, they would see the Wadani and they would lower from the rope, you know, gifts, machetes and axes and that kind of stuff. And when the Wadani started sending gifts back up on the rope, they said, OK, this is it. So they landed their plane on the, the banks of the Curry River. And their first meeting was, was, was two Wadani women and one, one man, and it went well. They thought it went great, and the Wadani were, were, were talking with them like they knew what they were saying and jattering away, and he took one of them guys up in the airplane, and, and they left happy. Things were good. And so when report came that there were ten Wadani coming towards them, they, they radioed their, their uh, wives, and they said, you know, the Wadani are on their way. They're going to make it in time for our service tonight. We'll get right back in touch with you as soon as it's done. But when the appointed time came and left... The, the women became very nervous. A search party was sent out, and Jim Elliott and his friends' bodies were found downstream from the Curry River. They were, they were speared to death. Now, Elizabeth says this at the preface of the book, and this, this has always stayed with me from 17 or 16 on. She said, when Jim was 20 years old, he prayed. Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. His life was that to me. We shared it more intimately than any other. Was it extraordinary? I offer these pages so that the reader may decide for himself. If his answer is yes, if he finds herein the stamp of Christ and decides that this is extraordinary, what shall we say of the state of of Christendom. Watchman Nee says that transformation is the normal Christian life. Jim Elliott is not, should not be extraordinary. This is what we're all called to be, fishers of men, even if it kills you like it did Jesus. Because we, we, we look at ourselves this coming year, as we look at our church, as we seek to become the greenhouse that he wants us to be, we need to know that this is our one thing. Everything will be judged by this. If, if, if whatever it is, if it helps us accomplish this, we, we, we embrace it. If it doesn't, we let it go. It should be true for the church. It should be true for us individually. 